0: Welcome back, everybody. I posted a poll on the Civics & Coffee Instagram in preparation for the presidential debates, and I asked you if you were all interested in an episode on the history of debates, and you guys spoke in the affirmative. So, here it is. Unanswered questions, pre-scripted talking points, constant back-and-forth bickering. You either love them or hate them, and they feel like they've been around since forever. However, presidential debates have only been consistently broadcasted on television since 1976. And did you know the first televised presidential debate occurred between two women? Yep, you heard me. Keep listening for that story. And though it was the debate in 1960 that would alter the relationship between politics and the media, the first televised debate happened four years earlier in 1956 and would in many ways act as a preview of what to expect in 1960. So, grab your coffee. Let's do it. But before we talk about the Ladies of 56, or the infamous showdown in 1960, let's talk about how we got the debate format as we know it today. Debating has been around almost as long as man, originating in ancient Greece with discussions on philosophy and democracy. For as long as man has had a thought, there have been opposing opinions stirring great dialogue, with each trying to convince the other of their points. Understanding the weight of the task ahead, The men at the Constitutional Convention in 1787 consented to a respectful debate of the issues, all agreeing to focus their arguments on the matter at hand and work to not offend or take offense of the points made. The convention took place in Philadelphia in the middle of the summer and was done in the times before air conditioning. That in and of itself is offensive. I do not do heat, and I cannot imagine having to develop a new form of government in the sweltering summer without getting massively irritated. So I imagine there was at least some disrespect. Debating classes and societies sprung up in the 1830s in a response to the increased access to the franchise, the idea that anyone who could vote should also know how to debate. However, the format of two candidates showing up at the same location to discuss issues can be traced to a United States Senate race. In 1858, 49-year-old Abraham Lincoln, running for the Senate seat in Illinois, was borderline harassing his opponent, Stephen A. Douglas, showing up at events after Douglas left and making the case for his candidacy. If Douglas gave a speech in a given locale, Lincoln would do the same. Stalker. In an effort to gain a wider audience and therefore gather more votes, Lincoln wrote Douglas in July, requesting debates. Douglas unenthusiastically agreed, and the two candidates settled on a total of seven debates, one for every remaining congressional district not yet visited by one of the candidates. The topic at hand would be slavery. Douglas, sponsor of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, was a proponent of the concept of popular sovereignty and argued each newly added territory should decide for themselves whether to be a slave or free state. Lincoln, by contrast, argued that slavery should be banned in any new state, Leaning on the ideals put forth in the Declaration of Independence, Lincoln contended that he could see no reason why blacks should be deprived of the rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Nearly 12,000 people showed up for the first debate on August 21st in Ottawa. Each event was to be three hours long. The candidate would speak for an hour, followed by the opponent who spoke for 90 minutes. The debate would end with the opening speaker closing out the event with a 30-minute response. They repeated this process seven times, you guys. It was not like the arguments we see on television today. And it was standing room only. Lincoln would lose his Senate race, but become president, winning election in 1860. Relegated to mainly debate societies and local races, the concept of two candidates showing up and making a case directly to the voters was largely absent. Presidential campaigns focused on making their case in separate publications and stump speeches, and avoided direct appearances with their opponent. This shifted a little with the advent of new forms of media such as the radio, where messages could be broadcasted across the country with little effort. In 1948, the Oregon Republican presidential primary hosted a debate between Thomas Dewey and Harold Stassen, broadcasted on three radio stations, and the Democratic Party would televise their primary debate on May 21, 1956, from Florida. It would be that same year in the run-up to the general election for president of the United States that two women would take the stage and make the case for their respective candidates and political parties. Taking place two days before Election Day on November 4th, these women, acting as surrogates for the presidential candidates, appeared on CBS's Face the Nation. In its second season, the debate marked the first time women had been on the program and was focused primarily on foreign policy. Standing in for Republican incumbent Dwight Eisenhower was the senior senator from Maine, Margaret Chase Smith. Smith, serving Maine first as a U.S. representative from 1940 to 1949, and then as senator, was the first woman to serve in both houses of Congress. In support of the Democratic challenger Adlai Stevenson was former First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt. Famous as being the longest-serving first lady, Roosevelt was a staunch defender of human rights and served as delegate to the United Nations from 1945 to 1952. Both women had high national profiles and were highly respected. Smith was aware of Roosevelt's reputation as a strong political advocate, and therefore Smith focused on her clothing and hairstyle choice, ensuring she struck the right tone for a televised appearance. What was potentially an odd choice in the moment, it demonstrates Smith was way ahead of her time in understanding the power of the visual media. Smith kept quiet and demure throughout most of the debate, limiting her responses to short sentences and maintaining a sense of calm, contrasting to Roosevelt's chatty nature. Smith appeared poised and polished, whereas Roosevelt looked a bit more haggard in an oversized suit. At the end of the debate, the women were given the opportunity to provide closing statements. Smith came out swinging with an impassioned plea for Eisenhower, surprising her opponent so much that Eleanor did not shake Margaret's hand at the end of the debate. Not only was it the first televised presidential debate, but this female-centered telecast was the first time women were showcased as being an influence on public discourse. In fact, it would help bring Smith such a large national profile that Homegirl would run for president eight years later. One of the other things that sets this debate apart from many of its counterparts the ladies actually answered the questions. But it was 1960, in a debate between two men, that would fully demonstrate the power and influence of television with John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon and their great debates in the run-up to Election Day. In a tight race and trying to gain momentum any way he could, John F. Kennedy, a 43-year-old junior senator from Massachusetts, challenged Richard Nixon, the sitting vice president and Republican candidate, to debate him on policy and issues facing the nation. Many in Nixon's camp advised against taking Kennedy on in a debate. In their mind, there was nothing for Nixon to gain and would only serve to elevate the young senator's national profile. However, Nixon was confident in his abilities as a debater and accepted Kennedy's challenge. Contrasting to the Senate debates held a century before, Nixon and Kennedy's debate were in a television studio, and the debate was much shorter only an hour compared to the three-hour marathons undertaken by Lincoln and Douglas. On September 26th, 70 million Americans tuned in for the first candidate-led televised debates, about two-thirds of the electorate at the time. By 1960, almost 80% of Americans had televisions in their homes, and Kennedy responded accordingly. When delivering remarks, he looked directly into the camera and spoke to the American people. Nixon, used to the normal debate format of responding to your opponent, directed his answers at Kennedy. A bit more aware of the power of the visual medium, Kennedy sought out every advantage. He met with the producers of the debate to see the set design, toured the venue ahead of the debate to understand camera placement, and selected a blue suit to contrast against the gray background of the television studio. Nixon did not understand or fully appreciate the power of television and did not take any special precautions for the televised debate. He was also battling a knee injury and was recently released from the hospital, so his mind was probably elsewhere. Nixon, who had lost weight as a result of his injury, looked sickly on camera, swimming in his oversized gray suit that blended in with the set's background. Unprepared for the hot lights of the set, Nixon began perspiring midway through the debate, with his makeup disappearing and a very prominent 5 o'clock shadow developing on screen. And to underscore how impactful the televised debates were in shaping public perception, responders who listened to the debate on the radio believed that Nixon had bested the young senator. But those who had watched on television gave the edge to Kennedy, who appeared youthful and commanding when you compared it to Nixon's gauntly posture. It was one of the closest elections ever recorded, with Kennedy earning 49.7% of the popular vote to Nixon's 49.5%. When polled, more than half of Americans admitted to being influenced by the candidate's performance, with 6% citing the debates as the deciding factor in how they cast their ballot. This was the ultimate example of style winning over substance. Nixon would be so furious about the impacts of the debates that he would refuse to participate in his 1968 bid for the presidency. It wasn't until the presidential race in 1976 that debates became the standard for a presidential campaign season, being organized and sponsored by the League of Women Voters Education Fund until party leadership took over management and format. After the 84 election, representatives from both the Democratic and Republican parties joined forces to establish the Commission of Presidential Debates in 1987. The League would forcefully challenge this, arguing the lack of a third-party sponsor would deprive voters of one of the only true authentic experiences during an election cycle. And while many agree that today's debates are inauthentic and feel like the worst kind of dental appointment, a number of Americans still use the debates to aid in their decision come voting day. And they still draw viewers. In 2016, almost 84 million people watched the first debate between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Not as old as we might think, presidential debates have had a lasting impact on the American political process. And though they are constantly updating the tone and format of these televised events, we will always have an example of how it could, and maybe should, be with the 1956 debate between Margaret Chase Smith and Eleanor Roosevelt. Well, I don't see how anyone can have confidence in either President Eisenhower or uh, Secretary Dulles' policies. Now, as a man and as a general, I respect him. He did a fine work, but the policies that have brought us into a position where we are, uh, as far as the Near East goes, um, standing together with the dictator of Egypt uh, and the communist uh, Soviet. Uh, it's an odd situation to find the United States in. Mrs. Roosevelt, and, may I yes, interrupt uh, right there? I uh, wonder why you say we're standing with the Kremlin and with Egypt in the matter. no we, one else in uh, the UN with us. Our policy is against aggression, because we're aggression and other nations are aggression. It doesn't mean that we are standing with those nations. We aren't standing with the Kremlin, certainly on the aggression in Hungary. And since the election is just around the corner, I want to remind everybody of how important it is to vote. Be sure to verify your registration at headcount.org. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of Civics & Coffee. If you want to hear more small snippets from American history, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining me, and I look forward to our next cup of coffee together.